You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey, listen, at the end of the day, um, what we believe we're doing here, thanks, Danielle, that was great. Um, we're, not, we're not like trying to be good at church, right? Like you can have that as a value and that can be important. And um, what we want to do is we want to be faithful to what God has called us to, what he's called this church to. And so um, we want to be faithful to his mission. We want to be faithful to proclaiming the gospel. We want to be faithful to living life together in community. And so at the end of the day, um, man, we just love being here despite the goofiness. Like I'm probably going to mess up some things here. So whether mics get messed up or not, man, like at the end of the day, we get to praise um, our good king. And so that's what we're about. We're glad that you guys are here with us. My name's Randall. I'm one of the leaders. Grab a Bible or turn your Bible on or whatever you got. Turn to First Peter chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 18, but before we dig in, I just got to do this real quick. Like, if you weren't here last week or you didn't tune into the sermon, like, um, we tackled like a really big, hard, difficult topic, which is that Peter wants us to see like our identity in Christ and how we live out of that, and he wants us to begin to think about how we relate to Jesus and it's controversial um, because of it's so loaded, but he wants us to think about Jesus as our master, and then we become slaves to him. And that, that language is riddled throughout the New Testament. Um, Paul uses it heavily, like we're, we're slaves to sin, but then we become slaves to righteousness. And we know that that language has kind of a, a, like a delicate like conversation in our minds, and, and it's loaded, um, but we, we walk through like a really challenging um, and difficult passage last week, but we needed to see that to see what Peter's going to do today. So I'd encourage you to go back and, and listen to that if you haven't. Um, for today, we're going to look at some really challenging things. I, uh, I really wanted Matt to preach this passage. <laughs> like, I really tried to get Matt to preach this passage, and he said, no. Not only would he, like, not preach this passage, he's not even here today, right? He just ran for the hills. So, um, we're going to dig into it, and I wanted, last week, we read, uh, Jesse read the same passage that Daniel just read, and it's in our sermon today. Um, a few of you were like, well, we read this last week, but we didn't even touch that, right? And I was like, yeah, because it's the key to unlocking all of this. So, so we'll dig into what Daniel just read, and it's great, um, but we got a lot of hard, difficult, challenging work to dig into first, right? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to jump in, and we'll see how this goes. You ready? All right. Father, we thank you so much for our time together, that you're present with us as your people. Uh, we love you. We want to worship you. We want to um, teach and, and preach and proclaim the truth of who you are through your gospel today. God, may it, may it um, enter our hearts. Like th- there's a lot in this today that's, that's so challenging. There's a lot in this that I think the church has gotten wrong, and um, we, we want to see you primarily, not us, in this today. We want to see how you're worshipped through this, and we want, to, we want to glorify you as a people. So God, would you, would you change us? Would you transform our hearts? Would you soften our hearts to hear the truth of your gospel this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. So what's challenging about that is not only does Peter call us to like relate to Jesus that way, but then he also calls his people um, to this like specific word, to like submit, right? Which, which is a challenging word for us to hear, like, like for so many reasons. Like as Americans, we value autonomy and independence and freedom. And so we, we trace this conversation around our freedom in Christ and how we're actually not free. 
um, to do things like sin against people or to sin um, against God in our, in our freedom. Um, we're actually free now to, to live our lives in a way that is selfless, that gives itself away to something far greater than, than who we are and what we're about, and to serve others. And then we had this like, tricky conversation. We had to get that first, right, to be able to understand what he's going to walk us through today. So he begins this whole conversation that we need to submit ourselves to human institutions, right? And man, that's challenging, right? Because throughout our history as humanity, right, like we've just wrestled with that. We've wrestled with like coming under authority and, and, and a lot of reasons. Like where does that story start though? Like if you trace it in the Bible, right, you can trace our challenge to authority and what it looks like to come under authority um, all the way back to the garden, right? Like what is Adam's declaration if not a challenge of God's good authority, right? Like I won't submit to your authority. I will set myself up and establish myself as a king of my own kingdom. And so then because of that, because of sin, like that pushes against that, that call to submit to authority and it's present in, in all of us, right? Now some of us are just natural born rule followers and so we fall a line and then a lot of us still fight that. But, but Peter here is going to call us. Look what he says. He says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So that's, that's government and that's its leaders. And so we have to ask this primary question, how as subjects then of a greater king whose authority is sufficient and is supreme and gives authority to human institutions and those that lead them, a king who deserves and commands our allegiance and our obedience. How do we navigate this very difficult question and reality? Should, should we be revolutionaries? Should we overthrow unjust governments and maybe establish like a theocratic state? Are we to entrench ourselves in nationalistic fervor, promoting our nation, our political ideology as the answer and savior of this broken world? Uh, should we simply go silent and become conscientious objectors, isolating ourselves, never participating or engaging with culture at large? Or do we just become more cynical and jaded against these institutions, complaining about these failed institutions, railing against the incompetency and corruption of our leaders? Well, Peter wants us to see that regardless of where Jesus' followers live and exist, which today is almost every country on every continent, so that means Christians find themselves under every form of government and rule and authority imaginable. And Peter wants his readers, and he wants us to see that, that while we are now citizens of this true and better and eternal kingdom, subjects of our good and righteous king before we're anything, we still have a responsibility to these earthly authorities. And so Peter's exhortation then is for us as exiles and aliens in this broken, sinful world, a world that feels as alien to us as we do to it, we still submit ourselves to, to every governing authority placed over us by God. But our submission must never equate to worship. So in, in Peter's time, when he's writing this letter, Rome had established like a religious fervency around its heroes, around its leaders, uh, but none more than the emperor himself. And it's a fascinating history. I'd encourage you to kind of dig into it and check it out for yourself. But beginning with Caesar, basically what is established is a cult, a cult to worship Caesar as God. So Caesar's heir, Octavian, pressed for the declaration that Caesar was divine, that Caesar was a god. 
So in 42 BC, the Roman Senate passed legislation declaring that not only Caesar, but the emperor was in fact a god to be worshipped, to be revered. So Peter uses this very specific word then as he begins to kind of unpack, like how do we deal with this, right? We've got Rome and this like Roman imperial cult that is so pervasive throughout the first century, right? And, and, and in, in so many instances, like you had no choice other than to subject yourself to the worship of this emperor. Well, Peter embeds this piece of language in there in the original Greek that kind of gets, again, lost on us. But so the word institution, it's a, it's a fitting word for the translation, but the word in the Greek actually would translate into the word creature, right? And so Thomas Schreiner explains this in his connection with his work on 1 Peter. He, he writes this. He says, the emperor cult was popular in Asia Minor. So it had spread from its epicenter in Rome to, to really like the whole entire known world. And Christians doubtless felt social pressure to participate. Peter reminded his readers at the outset that rulers are merely creatures created by God and existing under his lordship. So, so submit to, to what is created but don't worship it. Peter wants us to make it abundantly clear to us. Caesar is not God, so don't worship him ever. No ruler, leader, politician is to be worshiped. And we're like, yeah, totally. Like, we get it. But, like, aren't we kind of worshiping a creature when we uphold and promote our own particular political ideology or party or leader as the answer to the problem of this sin-sick world? Like, what are we saying when we sacrifice time and money and resources at the altar of a political party, but we don't do the same to advance the kingdom of God? What does it say about us when we say things like, I voted this way and somehow my vote saved not just our country but our world against an evil regime? Are you saying that, that, that this evil power rivals God's power? Like somehow God's not in control? Like, like somehow they could actually undo God as supreme? So our leaders, Peter wants us to see, are just mere human creatures just like us. And the institutions and the systems we create will reflect that every time. So, so I'd say one key thing to get submission that Peter's calling us to, to is this. You have to do the hard work of dethroning human institutions and its leaders from your heart, meaning you don't worship them. You don't place your trust in them. You don't place your hope in them. Um, you, don't, you don't view them as vastly superior solutions to the human condition than the gospel, right? Then you see what Peter is saying. Submit, yes. Worship, never. Because our worship is only directed at the sovereign, supreme God that created everything. So ultimately, Peter is, is actually subverting the Roman imperial cult here by telling his readers to both submit to it and to honor it, but never to trust in it and worship it. I, I can't help but P Peter had to think, like, what I love about Peter's proximity to Jesus and his relationship to Jesus is he was on the, he had a front row seat to, to all the things that we read about in the Gospels. In fact, we just spent the better part of like six months walking through Mark's gospel, which Peter certainly heavily influenced. And so Peter was there and he was present in this scene when the Pharisees and the Herodians like team up like the wonder twins, right? Um, and to, to bring Jesus down. They think that they've, they've laid this perfect trap. Let's, let's talk, let's confront Jesus about paying taxes and the law. And Jesus says, yeah, like, sure, 
pay taxes, honor the emperor, give him his cut, pay the taxes, but never give him what doesn't belong to him, which is you and your worship. And Peter is now showing his readers how that teaching of Jesus is playing out like in a real-world application for them, and, and, and then so also us today. And then one more thing, and, and we'll see how this plays out in the next section. Peter's exhortation here is comprehensive. Like he, 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 he says that we submit ourselves to all governing authorities, and the, the challenging thing is, that, is it doesn't mean if they're, like if they're only good. He's saying if they're good or if they're bad, if they're just, if they're unjust, it doesn't matter if you elected them or if you didn't. It doesn't matter if you agree with them or you don't. Peter wants his readers to know that they are to submit to governing authorities. So what does that submission look like? Well, Peter ties it intrinsically to our freedom in Christ. We're free now to, to submit to these human institutions and governing institutions. So, so we are now free moral agents first and foremost, God, guided by God's word and the Holy Spirit that resides inside of us to voluntarily submit ourselves. And we submit not only to avoid the ramifications, like if we don't, like we're not trying to avoid punishment, but we choose for the sake of God and his great mission and his kingdom to then submit. And we must always remind ourselves of this. Jesus is our king and his kingdom is our country. That means our first and really our only allegiance is to him. So we submit then to earthly authorities as slaves of the righteous and true God, and while we may be free from our former passions, we are not free from God's authority over our lives. So he became as a slave and ransomed us from our slavery to sin through his atoning sacrifice. So we no longer belong to ourselves. We were ranch ransomed and purchased at a price, and so we now serve a greater purpose than ourselves. So in the next section, Peter is going to zero this conversation down to this like most micro level for his audience. And there's kind of some reasons I didn't want these pieces read because so we read through First Peter our, our, our first time back or second time back for our hub community. And, and these passages like had, like, we all had a very visceral response to, right? Because they're difficult. And so we're, we're going to read through them here in a second. Um, but, I, but we had to have this conversation about submission first, and then we had to walk through this conversation. So he's going to zero this down um, to like its most micro level, which is the household, right? So he's going to illustrate this by addressing it through the lens of Greco-Roman household codes, which I'm sure you are all very familiar with, right? You know in and out, right? So, and it's and then he's going to point his readers and us to, to, like, to the two most vulnerable and exposed members of that Greco-Roman system, which are slaves and wives. And I get it. Like on the sheer face value of this, what Peter's about to say is a radical departure from our modern sensibilities, right? Of course, it's going to like cause like a very visceral response in us. And unfortunately, and we have to deal with this, right? These passages have been wrongly interpreted and employed by the church in our history. So let me just say this. If your understanding and your interpretation of these texts that we're going to walk through, like if these cause you to subjugate, oppress, 
harm or put another image bearer under the boot of oppression, then not only are you misunderstanding these passages, but you might also be like missing the entire point of scripture, right? So they should never be used to justify slavery or the oppression of women. So, so let's spend a few moments wrapping our minds around first century Greco-Roman household codes, which did this, established a hierarchy in the structure of this system, and then defined the mutual responsibilities that each various member of the household had towards authority. So what is so challenging about this is that Peter didn't actually call to disrupt or undo these systems, right? He's not addressing that at all, because we hear this, and like, if you, like, listen, like, rightly so, we should see these, these, these systems in these household codes as as an unjust system, and we want to like rage against the machine. But, but here's what Peter does. He calls his readers to, at, at least at first glance, to submit to them, not challenge them. So, so let's look at them all together before we dig in and, and kind of understand what Peter writes. So let, let's look at the significance of these codes embedded in their culture. So here's an example, right? So most of the first century Greek moral philosophers wrote about proper relationships within the household slaves to masters, wives to husbands, and children to parents. So renowned Greek philosopher Aristotle, um, not to be confused with the, the clothing retail juggernaut Air Apostle, which is confusing, I get, right? But he wrote this, speaking to their significance. The household in its perfect form consists of slaves and freemen. The investigation of everything should begin with its smallest parts, and the primary and smallest parts of the household are masters and slave husband and wife, father and children. We ought therefore to examine the proper constitution of character in each of these three relationships. I mean that of mastership, that of marriage, and thirdly, the progenitive relationship. Let us then accept these three relationships that we have mentioned, right? So the big push here was this is how you maintain order in a society. So it's establishing a hierarchy. Um, it's establishing obviously a patriarchy. So all of that authority would have resided in the male and then how, and, and ultimately, it, it, it certainly caused subjugation, right? So here's an example. Plutarch, regarding the relationship of wives to husbands, writes this, and in, in, in forming and upholding these household codes, writes, a wife ought not to make friends of her own. Now, I'm not saying this, ladies, all right? I, this, this is Plutarch's. Take it up with him. Um, so a wife not ought to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. And, and this is key. You have to hear this to see what Peter's doing. Like this, is, this, is, this would have been established in the households of the people that he's writing to. So a wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. So worship the gods that your husband worships. Be friends with the friends that your husband is friends with. Wherever, wherever, it, becoming, wherever it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all peculiar rituals and outlandish superstitions, right? And, and so then in that system, who are they to worship? Caesar, worship emperor as divine, okay? And so, so while these writers had these different views on slaves and women, all shared common belief that order in the household, which they believed to be divinely ordained, which for our text means that the worship, the, or the, or the emperor ordained them, was the essential basis for a strong, orderly, and prosperous society. So, so why is Peter addressing this, right? 
And we have to understand the tension. First, we have to, we have to grasp that Peter is most concerned about when somebody is coming to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior and worship him as king, there's now going to be this unbalance in the household. And, and that's going to create a, a, a direct violation of these codes. So, and, and he's going to point to slaves and wives for a specific reason, right? So, um, we need to grasp this. Why is he addressing this? So, he's informing his readers of their duties in a way, this is Plutarch, that affirms like the part of the Roman Greco social order, excuse me, this is what Peter's doing, while also subtly rejecting those premises that are not compatible with the gospel, right? So he's saying, yeah, there's pieces of this that, that you're just going to uphold um, and submit to, but then there's pieces that we have to reject because the gospel calls us to something bigger than that. So, so Peter's concerned that Jesus' followers do not use their freedom, and remember, he's, he's very concerned. He's writing about how we conduct ourselves in unjust places and unjust systems, and his concern is like, don't sin in those. Don't cause others to sin, right? And in that, you might actually be winsome for the gospel. So, so Peter's concerned for the followers of Jesus, that they do not use their freedom in a way that brings condemnation also like on the fledgling church for subverting social order. So this is challenging for us because, man, we would go like, why not undo this whole system, right? Well, well, there's a, there's a lot of speculation. It's hard. Like the, the New Testament writers are, are pretty silent when it comes to undoing these systems. They're more concerned about the conduct of Jesus' followers in those systems. But you got to remember, in like one speculative piece is this is 30 so years after Jesus' crucifixion. So this, this new movement, these followers of the ways, they're both a numerical and religious minority. They're being persecuted. So Peter's like, hey, if we're going to just survive the persecution for Nero, like, we, we need to, we need to, like, maybe, like, not go crazy and rock the boat. Like, he's concerned about, like, this fledgling church, right, that, like, is just this movement that's just getting started. So, at the same time, he's encouraging me, saying the freedom that, that you've been given in Christ then transforms your understanding of yourself in a way that's just completely unparalleled in this Greek moral philosophy of your time, which was so pervasive. Karen Jobes, who has a brilliant piece on 1 Peter, I encourage you to grab her work and, and read through it because um, there's so much to unpack here, um, kind of points this out. Like household codes, like they do not exist. Like if you go back like in the scriptures, like in the Old Testament, or you look to other Jewish historical documents, within Judaism, they do not seem to be concerned about these same household codes. So it's not until the New Testament, when, when Judaism has to engage the pervasive Greco-Roman worldview, that they begin then to address this. And she writes this, the copious writing concerning household management and their prominent place in the Greco-Roman culture suggests that no religion or philosophy entering the moral world could ignore addressing the same topic. So, so Paul, which we're not going to reference at all today, he has pieces of this where he's addressing these, these Greco-Roman household codes. So it's the same reason that Peter is now addressing them, right? And it, it's clear that while his worldview, his theology, his moral and ethical codes, codes have been shaped by Judaism, he addresses these household codes because he knows that the vast majority of his audience, especially those outside of the boundaries of Judaism, would have been primarily shaped by this worldview. 
So it's important to note that while he's both addressing these codes, he's not necessarily infirming them in their entirety. In fact, in subtle ways that do get lost on us because our, our, like, so that, like, there's no one-to-one to these things in, in our day, right? And so he, if, if you hold them up against, against the household codes and what Peter says, he's actually beginning to subvert them in very important ways. So, so let, me, let me read these back-to-back, back, right? Um, He's going to address these three groups here, slaves, wives, and husbands, and I'll read it, and then I'm going to like stick and move like my name was Cassius, because some of you are going to probably load up a haymaker here for me, right? So I'm just going to read through them, um, and we're going to omit a little bit of the language in there that just gets, it's a little bit too dense and confusing for the conversation today, and it'll make sense here in a second, right? So we'll pick it up in verse 18. So, so servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then skip over to chapter 3. He says, likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, we got through it. And like, I, like kind of can be lied about it, but, but also need to understand the gravity of this too, right? Like, like these are important passages and in a lot of ways, like, we've got these things wrong in, in a lot of ways. And so I think what's important for us today is to not get lost, like, in the weeds. And so, like, I'm not going to explain every single thing about this, right? Because it's easy to miss the big picture of what Peter wants us to see. He's pointing to both slaves and wives as the most vulnerable, exposed, oppressed in Greco-Roman culture and society, suffering, right, under persecution. And he's pointing to them as an archetype of Jesus followers. So we have to do some really hard work with this passage like this to prevent us from like misrepresenting Peter's intention here. And since both are so sensitive, sensitive to us as modern readers, like it's even more difficult, right? We, we, we can't dismiss them outright just because they offend us. We have to deal with them, but we also can't misrepresent them like historically the church has done. So, so let me just say this real quick. This passage, along with other references to the relationship between slaves and masters in the New Testament, should never, never be used as a justification for slavery. Unfortunately, in the history of the church in America, they have. We should lament that. We should confess it, repent of it as sin. That is not what Peter is doing here. Um, They should, nor should they be used to keep someone who is entrapped in slavery in place or submissive right? Nor do I believe that chapter 3, 1 through 7, this might rub some of you the wrong way, I do not believe that Peter's 
what he's trying to do here. He's not attempting to create a template for Christian marriage in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Because again, he's saying there's going to be this imbalance in these households now that, that one person, he addresses husbands too. Like if the husband is a believer, what do you do with that? If the wife is a believer, if the slave becomes a follower of Jesus. And so, so you just have to see like you can't unhinge that from that whole conversation. So keep in mind, Peter's most concerned again with Jesus followers, right? who find themselves under these Greco-Roman household codes, which would have been oppressive, and who may now be the only Jesus follower in their household. How do you navigate that conversation? What do you do, even if they're just or unjust? And his main concern, again, is how they conduct themselves, right, in that situation. And he wants his readers to conduct themselves in a way that frees them from sinning, doesn't cause the other people around them to sin, and in fact may actually lead others to glorifying God. So we, so we need to be sure, right, like as we consider this, right, that, that Peter, and, and as, he, as he brings up this discussion and his priorities, like what is he doing, right? He's driven, as he talks about these household codes, by, by this acute, like, missional concern. He wants his, his, to help his readers live on mission together in a difficult set of circumstances. He wants to help them defy expectations so that those around them who may oppose the gospel might be put to silence by their conduct and may even be brought to repentance and faith in Jesus themselves. So we have to recognize that in some ways the particular context that Peter writes it doesn't translate for us today. Like, it, there's no like direct one-to-one, right? Um, so, like, often when it comes with slaves and masters, people will try to one wiggle their way through this conversation and kind of dismiss what was going on here that Peter's addressing. We said this last week. It was slavery. It doesn't matter bond servanthood, chattel slavery. There's something flawed and broken in a system when a human has to come under the subjugation of another image bearer. So, so, and then the other thing is like, it's, it, like we try to draw these like one-to-one contexts. Well, we don't, you know, it doesn't exist like this today, but, but maybe it's like a workplace relationship. I don't think that that's what Peter wants us to see today. I think he wants us to lift the principles out, not try to draw one-to-one context for our context, right? So, so it becomes very challenging. We have to, we have to understand that. Let me clarify this though. There's, there's simply no way of denying it, right? Servants in verse 18, it refers to slaves, Again, whether that's chattel or, or bond slaves, and it's, it's tempting for us then, right? So this is where it's hard. Like, we, we want to jump ahead in time and think about our historical context of slavery in America, which, again, is abhorrent to God and is a fundamental violation of an image bearer of God. Uh, the New Testament nowhere affirms it. But Peter's concern here, again, he's, is not about upholding slavery. He, he's saying that maintaining a faithful gospel, gospel wit, witness within that structure, and, and what gets lost on us is addressing slaves who in this culture were not seen as human, no ability to exercise free will or choice, that in and of itself, that Peter is addressing them that would have been subverting those Greco-Roman household codes because when you read through them, it never addresses that the slaves have any responsibility, any moral free will. It only addresses how masters are to maintain order. So the fact that Peter's actually addressing sl- the, like slaves as human beings, free moral agents to choose how they conduct themselves in this circumstance 
is completely subversive to these codes. It would have been downright offensive to that culture. Household codes, again, they never address slaves, only masters. So not only by including, but addressing them as a human that had this moral agency, elevated the slave above the cultural context and gave them a place of dignity as a fellow image bearer of God. And so then just as Peter begins with his instructions that slaves submit themselves to their masters, he begins his instructions to believing wives with that same qualification, right? He's saying that wives' reverence for God is her motivation for submitting to the household codes and her husband. Again, super challenging for us to get. Like, there's not a one-to-one. Like, listen, I, I think we should all admit and understand that, like, we still have a lot of work to do right? We have a lot of work to do in this area, but our culture is becoming more egalitarian, um, and so, like, to, to, sub, to, to, to put these household codes and, and say, like, there's a one-to-one for all culture, it, it doesn't quite exist, and so Peter's addressing wives in the same way, but he has a bigger and, and broader purpose in mind. He addresses husbands also, and he says, hey, you're free now in Christ to live in a way that actually honors your wife and that doesn't subjugate her. Um, so, it's a challenging conversation for us to, to work through, but, but regardless, right, because what Peter's calling all of these groups to, like especially slaves and, 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 and the wives, is like regardless of, of this system, if it's unjust or not, whether it's harsh or it's kind, the antagonism for, for wives that her faith might produce in the home is to be endured for the sake of Christ and for the good of her husband, which, again, I get it. It's challenging for us to kind of work through, like, what does that mean? So, so, so why would a wife's conversion to Christianity likely provoke antagonism from her husband? Well, what did Plutarch say? Like, your friends have to be his friends. Your gods have to be his gods, right? And, and, and Peter's not saying follow that. Peter's saying worship Jesus, Still worship Jesus and follow Jesus and honor your husband in a way that actually might draw him to the gospel, right? And so, so we're not going to unpack all of the rest because, again, the cultural context that Peter is writing into um, just doesn't totally translate, but I, I think Peter wants us to see these principles. So what are those principles, right? Like if you lift them out from the entirety of these passages and leave the context behind, he's saying by, by doing, like in verse 15, by doing good, right, by conducting yourselves in, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, not adhering to the passions of your flesh, right, you, you might actually silence, he says, the ignorance of foolish people, right? Those that are opposed to the gospel. And he says, be subject to your masters with all respect. Like, even if they're unjust, endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. Let, like, the adorning of the hidden person of the heart. Like, like don't attract people um, to the gospel with things that are temporary, that are perishable. Like, Peter Peter has this big conversation through his letter. He seems to be very concerned about things that are temporary or temporal and, and perishable versus things that are imperishable, right? He's saying, like, don't draw people to the gospel with things that just don't last, that aren't forever, right? And we, that, that's hard for us. We have to wrestle with this. Like, apparently, not everything is forever. And as much as it pains my heart, and it's the second reference is in two weeks, that means Wu-Tang isn't forever. <laughs> but the gospel is right? They're still for the children. It's all right. So he goes on. He says, let the adorning of the, like the hidden person of the heart, because that's what lasts forever with this imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Live in an understanding way, showing honor to others. 
That's, that's how we should live, right? So, so we, we pull it out of the context, and he's saying any Jesus follower, like this should be how you conduct yourselves as you submit to these human institutions in a way that, that hopefully will draw people to the gospel. So, so difficult, yes, but when we remove them from Peter's acute context and look at the principles he's exhorting each person to live out, they become principles of, for all Jesus' followers, whatever the context, whatever the culture. And for Peter, they may actually result in an unbelieving person in their context being drawn by the gospel and submitting and worshiping Jesus as king. And like, I get it, all of this seems so, like so difficult, right, and challenging for us. We have to ask ourselves these questions like, well, well why and how? Well, Peter answers that question for us, and he answers that question for us with a who. So let's close our time today by looking at verses 21 through 25, which is what Daniel read and what Jesse read last week. I told you last week, like, as you wrestle through the conversation of, of this submission conversation, keep these verses in mind. We didn't exposit this verse last week um, because it's the key to kind of both of these things from last week and today. So he says, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, was com- he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Now, does that sound familiar? Like, is there, does that cue you in to any other piece of scripture? Like, do we catch this? So, Peter's the only place that explicitly, like, quotes and references Isaiah 53, right? And so when you hold these up together, you can see he's, he's directly quoting verses from that, and then he's adding context to them, right? So the heart of Peter's understanding and beliefs of Jesus, like how, how he saw Jesus, specifically Jesus' suffering, which he saw firsthand, he witnessed, right? That becomes the foundational principle for living rightly in a society most common and like most mundane structures, the household, right? And, and to create the template for Jesus' followers to follow, regardless of their cultural context. What Peter is setting up here for us is, is this. When we embrace a theology of righteous suffering that's rooted in the gospel and Jesus, we will be able to prepare ourselves for such eventualities and endure suffering whenever it arrives at our doorstep. And it will right? Not that we ask for more, not that we just like, hey, heap it on, I enjoy it, right? But it will. And he holds up Jesus then as our perfect example of how to endure unjust suffering, because he saw it, right? With his, with his own eyes. And the, the word that he uses for example, this is important, the word that he uses there for Jesus as our example is the word that refers to um, these like letters that children would use to trace in order to learn how to write, right? And so he's saying this, he's saying, as Jesus followers, we are called to trace Jesus's footsteps, right? Where Jesus stepped, we stepped, and his steps take us through the path 
of unjust suffering. In verses 22 and 25, Peter retraces Jesus' steps through the words of Isaiah and the suffering servant. And so when we suffer as servants, we are following in his footsteps. And if we follow Jesus' steps, we will suffer. And as we follow Jesus' steps, we will need to learn to suffer in a way that he suffered. And more importantly, we can begin to respond like Jesus responded to unjust suffering. Jesus suffered and died, though he committed no sins. So if we trace Jesus' steps, there is simply no reason to think that we will escape unjust suffering. And when we suffer, that's no excuse to sin. Because Jesus did not respond. He didn't verbally lash out or threaten those who caused his unjust suffering. Instead, Jesus went to his death like a, like a silent lamb being led to slaughter. So we are to retrace the steps of Jesus and remember that he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. The temptation to lash out and accuse or malign when we are wrongly accused or mistreated is powerful. Listen, like I had to wrestle with this this last week, right? So my son's doing indoor soccer, right? His team's not good at all. And the team that we're playing against had like three or four, like totally, you could tell like club kids, right? So the coach ran the score up to like 22 to 2 right? And we're like, listen, I get it. I'm not, like, I'm not about participation trophies, but there is, like, some, like, most people kind of get, like, sportsmanship, right? Like, there's no reason to keep doing that. And then he, like, made our team run after the game. Like, our kids were, I'm like, what is going, like, I wanted to go out there so bad and, like, be like, this is unjust. Like, what are you doing, right? And, and so it was, like, a chance for me to go, like, oh, like, like, maybe this is a chance to not revile, right? To not seek revenge here. Like, because we want to push back. We want to fight fire with fire. But when we trace Jesus' steps, we remember that he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He trusted the Father. He cared more about the approval of his Father than he did the need to seek revenge. He, he trusted himself to the Father and his Father's perfect justice. He knew that the Father would set all injustices right, and he cares more about the approval of his Father on that day when all things will be set right than any vindication he would feel for striking it back against his accusers, even though he was innocent. So we fight the temptation to retaliate against our oppressors or to exact revenge the same way. Trusting in God's perfect justice, we trust God to right all wrongs. Then we can face injustice in, in, in unjust suffering without retaliation. We have no need to take personal justice into our own hands. Now, now don't get me wrong. That is not a call to, to seek justice for the world. That's not a call to, to not seek to undo unjust systems. It's a call for us personally to not seek personal revenge. We should be working to undo unjust systems where we can and how we can affect them. So as we wrap this up, we need to see this because Jesus is our example, yes, but so much more than that. See, he has dealt with our sin in his suffering, so he's our example, but more than that, he's our substitute in suffering. The purpose of Jesus's death was to put an end to sin and its power in the lives 
of his followers, freeing them to live rightly and to glorify him. By his death on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of his people and now offers forgiveness to those who confess and repent from sin and to entrust themselves to him because by his wounds we have been healed. Humanity was straying like sheep, lost in a world of sin and selfishness, but Jesus made a way for humanity to return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. If you go back to the beginning of the passage last week, I think it's, I think it's verse 11. Peter says like, hey, abstain right, from these earthly passions because they wage against your soul. You see how he upholds these two things? Like your, 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 your passions, your fleshly passions, sin, well, it wages war against your soul. It's trying to, to steal and to kill and to destroy you at ever, every turn. So why would you entrust yourself to something that's waging war against your very soul? Instead, entrust yourself to the good and right, true king and shepherd who is the overseer of your soul, the one who promised to regather his scattered exiles by placing a faithful shepherd from the line of David over them, who would himself feed and shepherd his sheep. It's hard. I get it. This is a challenging piece of scripture. Like, I didn't even want to show up today, (laughs) but I hope, man, that probably comes with a lot more conversations on our part like dig into this, right? Because it is challenging. But I hope in this moment, what you see more than the challenge of it is you see the good grace of our good king, the shepherd of our souls, who calls us to a life of freedom. A life of freedom to not seek ourselves, but to serve others, to love them in hopes that they'll see the gospel and be freed themselves. So let's respond now. I'm going to do that in a few ways here. Uh, we would ask, like Austin's going to come back up here, and, and we get to sing like these beautiful songs. And my hope and my prayer is that that's a moment for you. Beyond reciting words on a screen, it's a moment that your heart is tuning in to God's goodness for us, His grace for us in this moment. It asks that you just take some moment quietly for yourself to communicate and talk and, and pray and enter in communion with God through prayer. Um, if Hub City is your home, We'd encourage you to give and give freely and give worshipfully. You can do that in a few ways today. Um, we have this box on the way out the door. You can put money in there. Get a Hub City's home. You can, you can give online. And then, of course, every Sunday, we come to this moment at Hub City where we, we go to this table, this invitational table, where on it, there's these elements. There's, there's bread, and there's a cup that has juice in it, and Jesus would uphold this, right? This conversation he's having with his friends and his followers in this most intimate scene and one of the last moments that he'll share with them. And he upholds that piece of bread and he says, this is my body and it's broken for you. I'm gonna go to a cross and it will be shredded for you. This thing that you're looking at right now that this bread represents, like you won't even recognize it as human. When I, when, I, when I face the unjust suffering I'm about to face. So, so this bread now represents that. So ingest it, like partake in it, and know that as you do that, you, like there's grace in that. There's communion in that. 
There's unity in that. And then he upholds this cup. He says, my blood, which is precious, will be spilled for you. There's been a lot of blood spilt for you. Animals throughout the history of his people. But when my blood is spilled, no more blood will need to be spilled. Yours won't. I'm standing in your place as your substitute. My blood will be poured out for you. So take this cup and remember me. Remember what you're about to see. Remember the grace that comes through this horrible scene that you'll witness in my crucifixion. But also know this, I won't stay in a tomb. I'll walk out of it to new life, and now that new life is yours in me. So go to the table this morning freely. If, if Jesus is your king, if you submit to his righteous reign and rule in your life, go to the table, receive grace, worship him. Let's respond.